All right, the title of the message today is Ask, Seek, Knock. Ask, Seek, Knock. We need to back out a little bit and get the big picture again of the Sermon on the Mount. And I'm going to do a little bit of review, and there's a reason for it. And I, I know when we do review that the tendency sometimes is in our hearts to check out and think, well, yeah, I remember that. I got that. Oh, yeah, I was here for that sermon. I, I, I'm okay. But I want you to try to engage your mind as we review a little bit because it's extremely important that as we get into our passage today, if you don't have the full context and you don't have that big picture, it's not going to make any sense. You're going to miss it. So I want to challenge you today uh, to stay with me as I review a little bit. First, there was the introduction. Turn back in your Bible, look back at it in Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. Remember, Jesus is speaking to his disciples and he begins to give a sermon. And it's on a mountain. And he talks to them and opens his mouth and began to teach them, saying... And he introduces the sermon. The introduction of the sermon runs from verses 2 down through verse 12, where he's talking about the Beatitudes, the blessed life of a believer... Jesus explained that the favor of God that results in joy, great joy, is on all those who, distinct, who are distinctly different from the world. We're different from the world and we live for God, unlike the rest of the world. The blessed people are the poor in spirit, the humble, the righteous seekers, or righteousness seekers, that is, those that seek to be righteousness. And those who are faithful and trust God, even in persecution, in times of trouble. Next, Jesus gave the overall mission of the believer in verses 13 to 16. Look at it again. That's the spot where he talks about how we should be the light of the world. That is the illumination of the world. That is the revelation of God to the world. Those who are under God's divine grace... Reveal God to the world. That's what our mission is. We are to be an illumination. Next, Jesus began to unfold practically what the person who is the light of the world looks like. How it looks to, be li to live out this light of the world. And that starts in verse 17. In verse 17, he begins to say, okay, now this is what we should look like if we're going to be the light of the world. This is what believers look like. This is what disciples look like. And he starts with this thing in the, the passage itself is called an inclusio. I know a big word, real easy really, in the inclusio. An inclusio is something that kind of brackets the body of a sermon. It starts it and ends it. And you can tell that there are similarities to the beginning and the end. And the material between the... Inclusio, or those two phrases, gives you the body of the sermon. And here it's often, uh, you'll see it in our passage, that it bookends the beginning and the end of the body. And then there's a conclusion. We have the introduction, the mission, and then the inclusio. That's the body. Look at verse 17. That's the beginning of the body of the sermon. It states this, do not think that I came to abolish the law and the prophets, or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. And we talked about how Jesus came into the world to fulfill it ultimately in himself, 
But for all those that believe in him, we actually what? We fulfill the law of love. We follow him and we obey him and we, we're, we follow his example. Well, this begins this idea of the law and the prophets and fulfilling the law and the prophets. That's the beginning of the inclusio, the beginning statement. Look down at 7.12. 7.12. In chapter 7, verse 12, he ends it. He ends the inclusio, or the body of the sermon. And he states this. He says, In everything, therefore, treat people the same way you want them to treat you. Here we go. For this is the law and the prophets. Okay, so what do we have? That's the end. It's that idea of, okay, he started with, I did not come to abolish the law but to fulfill it. And then he explains what fulfilling the law looks like all the way through the body. And then at the end, he closes it with a summary of the whole thing. In everything, therefore, treat people the same way you want them to treat you. For this is the law and the prophets. Another way of saying, this fulfills the law and the prophets. So you got the beginning of the body in verse, back in 17, 517. The end in 712. So we're coming down to the end of the body of the sermon, right? And throughout the whole sermon, he's been making this point that we should live set-apart lives in a fallen world. We should fulfill the law of Christ by, the, by grace through faith in Him. Christ's followers are to reveal God's righteousness to the world. Disciples must avoid the self-righteousness of the Pharisees. In other words, it can't just be about your outward external. It can't be about those things. It's got to be about true righteousness. And so the whole sermon from verse 17 all the way to 712 is telling the believer, this is what you should look like in the world. He gives practical explanation and practical commands and imperatives on how we should live. Okay? That's what Jesus has done. So I want to look at the body and review the body real quickly and look at these commands. Now, as we're going through this, I want you to all engage your minds and ask some questions to yourself as we're going through these commands. Yes, I've heard these, but have I been living these? Have I been living these? Okay, I've heard this command. I've been told what to do, but is my life looking like this over the last three, four months as we've been going through the Sermon on the Mount? And ask yourself. So start in verse 23. Verse 23 of chapter 5. Remember, this is one sermon. Jesus didn't preach this sermon over three months. He spoke the whole thing in one time. Okay, he gave all of these things at one time. And why that's important is is because by the time we get down to the end and we talk about our passage today, you're not going to understand it properly unless you see it as one sermon. If you see it as broken up pieces, then you're going to miss the whole point of that last command that he gives us in today's passage. Look at 523. Jesus implores his followers, Therefore, if you are presenting your offerings... At the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your offering before you go, before the altar, and go. First be reconciled to your brother, 
and then come and present your offering. Okay, what's his point? The disciples of Christ must immediately seek reconciliation with those who have issues with us. We should be all about reconciliation. So here's the, here's the command. Be reconciled to your fellow believers. That's a simpler form of it, right? Have you been seeking reconciliation with your fellow believers? There's the command. Go to the next one, 529. If your eye makes you stumble, tear it out, throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for the whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off, throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. What's he saying? Take radical steps to avoid sin in your life. Do whatever you can to avoid allowing the lust of your flesh to control your heart. Take radical steps. So have you been doing that? Have you been avoiding sin at all costs? Have you been doing the radical things to avoid it? Look at verse 39 of chapter 5. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other one to him also. Here he calls us to what? Graciously accept mistreatment without returning evil. That's ultimately what he's saying. Don't return revile for revile. Let somebody, if somebody hits you, don't think that you've got to get it revenge. That's ultimately what he's saying. So how have you done? When the guy pulled out in front of you, and you said, go ahead, brother. You first. How about this one? But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Seems to get harder and harder, doesn't it, as he goes through his sermon. Love your enemies? That's very simple. It's very clear. It's not complicated. Lay your life down for your enemies. Pray for them. And it doesn't mean pray imprecatory prayers on them. Pray for their repentance and their restoration and reconciliation to God. How about this one? 548. Therefore you are to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. He strive for maturity. Imitate our adopted heavenly father. How you been doing on a, imitating your heavenly father? <laughs> Do you look mature? <laughs> Do you look like God's child? Do you reflect your father? Do you look like him? Pretty intense. Anybody in, the, in here like me by this time as I was writing it? Oh, I'm feeling conviction again. Yes? We're not done yet. Look at 6.1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. You know how many times I've heard some of you all say over the last couple months, I did so-and-so, and I say, good job. Ah, just lost my reward. What's the point? We're not doing these things ultimately for what? People's notice. We don't live to receive honor and praise from the world. That's not what we're about. And that's what Jesus is calling his disciples. Don't live for the praise of the world. 
Look at 6.3. But when you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. These are all commands. Give discreetly without seeking others' approval. Right? How about 6.6? But you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. What's that mean? Pray. Not to be noticed by others, but rather to commune with your Heavenly Father. Pray, seek Him, enjoy Him, delight in Him, but don't do it so that other people see you and say, man, you are eloquent at prayer. That's his point. 619, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. What should we do? He tells us, he tells us, his disciples, he tells us, avoid prizing the things of this world. Hold on loosely to the things of the world. So how loosely have we been holding on to the things of the world? Have we been holding tightly? Or is he more valuable? Are we letting those things go? How about this one? Do not worry then, saying, what will we eat? Or what will we drink? Or what will we wear? Clothing. For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. That does not mean you can't ever go buy a coat. Man, how many times has somebody said, does this mean I can't buy a suit coat now? No, what it means is, is that these aren't the priorities in our life, though, right? We don't worry. We trust God. We don't have to have these things. If we have them, great. If we don't, that's Okay. But we're not pursuing them with everything that we have. We don't worry about the things of the world. We trust the Lord for all of our needs, don't we? And he says, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. 633. How well have we been doing this? Seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness. Or, just last week, do not judge so that you will not be judged. Do not judge with self-righteousness. Exalting yourself over others. Condemning others and puffing yourself up. Saying, I'm better than so and so. Do not judge. Yet he said, in very important contrast, do not give what is holy to dogs. And do not throw your pearls before swine. Or they will trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Be discerning. In other words, do not judge with self-righteousness, but be discerning. Not gullible. Not sharing the truth with people who are just wanting to argue with you. And blaspheme God. So. We've studied these, all these commands. There are imperatives throughout the whole thing, isn't it? This is what he wants us to do. How are we doing obeying these commands? How do our hearts look with regards to righteousness? How in the world do we live these commands all the time? Anybody else thought this as we've been going through this? Anybody else struggled with Wait, he just preached on this. The word said this, and I just did it when I shouldn't have. How can we be light in the world when I'm still sinful? I still have a propensity to sin. Anybody ask that question? 
I don't look that much different. I should look so much more different than the world. But I'm still sinful. How can sinners like us reveal our heavenly Father when we're sinners? <laughs> the world's so wicked, isn't it? And our workplaces are filled with those that oppose the truth. And we are tempted continuously, aren't we? Everywhere we look, we are tempted to fall in one of these many commands that he's given us. Right? We are tempted to worry or to seek people's approval or perform for others, not God. Or to return evil for evil. To lust. To value things over the world rather than God. Aren't we tempted with this all the time? Anybody else? So how do we survive? How do we do it? How do we make it? Jesus answers the question today in our passage. He answers the question at the very end of the body of the letter. How do we survive and thrive? The short answer, ask, seek, knock. Pray. How do we do this? Ultimately, the answer is we can't. But he can through us. He'll work in us. I know. We come to a passage like this and it's abused again, isn't it? Just like Judge Lot, not yes, you let, yes, last. <laughs> judge not lest you be judged is used and abused, right, by the world. Asked, seek, and knock is definitely abused by so-called Christians in this world. The prosperity gospel movement loves this passage. They want it. Ask God for riches and he'll give it to you. Seek to be wealthy and you will be rich. Knock on your heavenly father's rich door and he'll give you lots of riches. You'll open it up and you'll be wealthy, healthy, and prosperous. But that's not what the passage is about. That's not the context. The context is, how do I reconcile with people that are hard to reconcile with? How do I kill sin that seems to be there all the time? How do I turn the other cheek? How do I love my enemy? Answer to all of those Pray. Pray. Seek God. Knock on your heavenly Father's door. How do I avoid living for man's approval? Pray. How do I give with an audience of one in mind? Pray. How do I pray with correct priorities? Pray. God. Created me a heart that will ask for the right things. So you ask for everything. You seek him for everything. 
How about this one? How do I seek his kingdom and his righteousness first? Well, seek the one that can help you be righteous. <laughs> we need to pray. And that's what he's saying to his disciples. In light of the great big context of everything I've told you to do, what do you need to do? Pray. Pray. That's very interesting. Y'all know this. We do this. And, and look, I'm not saying that you shouldn't ever ask for somebody that's got a, a, a healing situation or needs some kind of medical thing. I think we should. But I don't ever hear many of these prayer requests. I don't hear many of them. And I admit, I'm not really reluctant. I'm kind of reluctant to say them too. Hey, I'm having a hard time reconciling with somebody in my heart. <laughs> Will you pray for me to not have any bitterness? We don't say that one much, do we? Hey, I got this sin that I'm having a hard time killing. <laughs> Will you help pray for me <laughs> that I'll kill this sin? Man, somebody really, really mistreated me. I am having a hard time not wanting to retaliate. Will you pray for me? I think this is what Jesus is getting at, though. True disciples seek God for all of these issues all the time. That's his point. We don't seek to be healthy, wealthy, and prosperous, we seek to be righteous and honor God and obey His commands. If our minds are correct, and we've been listening to the sermons, and we've really been evaluating our hearts, when we get to the prayer time, we ask for the right things. Because notice in our passage, look at it again, 7-7. He never tells us what to ask for. Does he? Look at the passage. 7-7. Seven, seven. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks it will be open. Let's stop there. Think about this for a second. He doesn't tell us what to ask for. He doesn't tell us what to seek. He doesn't tell us what. We should knock and then... Seek to get from God when he opens. He doesn't give the content, does he? How many of you want to know what the content is? The content of your prayers, what should they be? He's already gave it to you in the sermon. He's told you, this is what I desire from you. And if we're seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness, then what's going to be your prayer request? What he wants you to do. Did you catch that? Oh, we rip verses out of context all the time, don't we? In order to make them say what we want them to say. But God has made it very clear. He has a desire for everybody in the room that's a follower of Jesus. And it is to seek him and his righteousness more than anything else. He's already told us. And so what should we be praying for? What he's already said. And then he tells us how persistent our prayer should be and how consistent it should be. And he makes that emphatically clear in this passage, doesn't he? He talks about prayer. So this passage breaks down into two sections, the exhortation to pray in verses 7 and 8 and the motivation 
to pray in verses 9 to 11. Let's look at the exhortation. Everybody caught that? It makes sense? Do you see why I tried to have to go all the way back through it? So you get the whole idea? Okay. So let's start with the exhortation to pray. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be, and it will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks it will be opened. First and foremost, we must understand something. Prayer in this passage is obviously all about having a humble, dependent heart. A humble, dependent heart. It asks. It seeks. It knocks. Prayer is all about a heart seeking God. Look back real quick at verse 3. Verse 3 of chapter 5. Verse 3 of chapter 5. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Hmm. The humble. <laughs> See, it's the heart that's already been revealed at the very beginning. Is the person that does what? Asks, seeks, and knocks. Now, I admit to you, as I was thinking on this last night, well, sometimes we ask because we think we deserve something, right? We ask, it's, 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 it's sometimes, we don't have this problem in our house anymore, right? Go into the grocery store and, can I have that? Can I have that? Can I have that? No. Can I have that? Nope. Can I have that? Nope. How about that? It's really nice, please. Nope. And you get to the end. How about just one little piece of candy? No. <laughs> Why not? I was so good the whole time. What was that heart? That heart somehow thought that because I only asked a thousand times and I didn't complain at all. That somehow I deserve to now get the last piece of candy on the aisle. Right? That's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about the heart that's humble and recognizes a true and genuine need. A true and genuine need is a, a need that recognizes my sinfulness and my inability to do this on my own. Especially in light of the sermon, right? <laughs> Where he's told us to what? Be reconciled to those that have hurt us. Or not be bitter with those that have hurt us. How many of you, that just comes naturally for you. When somebody pulls out in front of you, you say, oh yeah, come on. That's great. Nobody. Yeah, if we're thinking like the... The asking in the grocery store at that moment, it's like, God, don't I deserve for you to smite those people in front of me? Because I was driving so good, and they pulled out in front of me, and I'm being a good driver, and they're being horrible. That's not what he's talking about, is he? He's talking about a humble person that says, Lord, my propensity is to what? Get angry and try to return revile for revile. 
Oh, God, help me. I need you. And we ask and we seek and we knock. Notice prayer is commanded here. And yes, he uses three different words repeated twice in order to make it emphatic. Ask, seek, knock. Prayer comes with a promise. We'll be given to you. We'll find. We'll be open to you. Prayer must be continuous. Keep asking is how you could translate this. Keep seeking. Keep knocking. Who is asking? Who is seeking? Who is knocking? For everyone, who is asking? That's, those are all present tense, and his point is what? Continuously doing this all the time. What does Paul say? Pray without? Yes, asking, constantly seeking, constantly knocking. Prayer is continuous. Prayer involves pursuing God. Notice it says, seek, 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 and you will find. What's he saying, seek? He's obviously not talking about seeking riches, is he? He's talking about seeking God. And I love that. Seek righteousness. How do I seek righteousness? I seek him to help me produce righteousness. Because it's only by his grace that I can do anything that honors God. Correct? I seek him. I seek God. My problem is, is I need this stamp to my forehead. How about you? Because as I'm confronted with how I fail, I forget the place I should go is him, not me. Right? Instead of clean me up, I should be going, I need help. Prayer involves fellowship. I think this is the point in the knock. Who is knocking? It implies this idea that the door will be open and we will be able to fellowship and enjoy God as he opens the door as we pursue him and we seek him. We seek to have fellowship with him. And notice in verse 8, everyone. Prayers for every believer. Now, I think if we did a show of hands, I think most of us would agree. I, I, I think there's a, a tendency for us in here, all of us, to either lean towards the academic side of Christianity or the uh, relational side of Christianity and walking with God. What do I mean by that? Well, some of us in the room might, be great studiers. <laughs> we'll spend lots and lots of time. Ooh, I, I can study the Bible. Study the Bible. Ooh, give me a book. I want to read another book. I want to do this. But, but my, my forte might not be just sitting quietly and praying and talking to the Lord. I think it's important here that we need to understand that even if you're not good at something, doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. Especially when it's talking about this. Prayer. How many of you consider yourself... Uh, that's one of your favorite things to do, and you do it. It becomes real easy to you to pray. Anybody in here would say that? 
Well, there's one. I see one hand. Is there anybody else? Two. I see two. Three. There, um, there's two kids and two adults. Any others? I, I, I want that. Alice isn't here today, is it? Is she? I know Alice is the prayer warrior of the church. Beloved, I, I think we all need to pray more. Don't you agree? He's saying this over and over. Ask, seek, knock. Ask, seek, knock. Pray. Seek God. Everyone who prays receives. Every believer. Notice also prayer is unequivocally essential for the believer. These two verses are almost a perfect repetition. Why does he do this? Look at this. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. Wait, didn't he say that in verse 7? He said the same thing. The reason for praying is because prayer is effective. But he says... Prayer is effective, and the reason to pray is because prayer is effective. It's kind of how it reads, doesn't it? Pray because it's effective. It will be effective. And the reason that you should pray is because it's effective. He just repeats himself. It's somewhat like a circular argument. Why would he do this? Well, because it's essential, and it's emphatic. And he's implying that it's not an option. You have to do it. Again, how do we live righteous and God-honoring, God-glorifying lives? There's only one way. Pray. You can't do it without it. We receive His work in us. He helps us. He changes our thoughts and our desires. I, I remember a prayer. When, one of the first things, one of the first things I was really encouraged by my my wife when I was dating her. She mentioned a concept to me that I had never heard before. She talked about what she prays, and one of the things she said, one of the things I pray regularly. She said this, and I was like, "Well, new, fairly new Christian here." That was the only thing she didn't pray about. I'm thankful for that. She said this. She said, "Lord, align the desires of my heart with Your will." Make my heart desire what you want for me. That's a great prayer, isn't it? You know, we wouldn't use this verse as a get rich quick verse if the desires of our heart were what God's desires were. See, if the desires of our heart were holiness, Purity, reconciliation, peace with others, kindness towards others, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. If our desires of our heart were those, what would we be praying for? That. And we'd receive it. Oh, Lord, change my heart, right? <laughs> Change the desires of my heart that my prayer list and my prayer requests will be in alignment with Matthew 5 through 7. 
that I'll be praying the right things. You want some good news? He is going to give us what we pray for. He is. Guess what? He wants you to be holy more than you want to be holy. (laughs) He wants you to forgive others even more than you want to forgive others. But if we ask Him and we seek Him and we knock and pursue Him, He'll give it to us. That's a reason to go pray, isn't it? Now, how do we know for sure that He's going to answer our prayers? How do we know? Well, because of verses 9 to 11 and because of who He is and the motivation for us to pray. The motivation for us to pray is, is, or what man is there among you who when his son asks for a loaf, loaf will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? If you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? Now, I know when we read a passage like this, again, we can start to think and zoom in on the loaf and the stone and the loaf and the stone or the fish and the snake. And again, I think he's using emphatic language, almost outlandish language, in order to make his point. Just like gouge out your eye, log in the eye, all these things. He's using outlandish concepts to kind of shock your senses so you see his point. It's an emphatic way of making his point. But we can get stuck and think that it's just about asking for food, which that's really not, again, his main concept. He's just making a a point about the character of God. Now, I want you to listen closely, beloved. Prayer, we are motivated to pray because of the character of God. We seek Him, we ask Him, we knock on His door because of His character. We know who He is, and therefore we pursue Him. I have to admit, it's really hard to go to an all-knowing, all-holy, perfect God, righteous God, who does not value stuff, to then go to Him and say, give me more stuff. Do you understand the, con- the paradox there? The tension? If we're driven by the things of the world and he told us not to pursue those things and then we go, come on God, give me this. Then what we're basically saying is, is that he's not consistent with his character. His character says what? Don't be all about that stuff. Have you thought about that? <laughs> I was convicted by this. There were a couple of things. Man, Lord, it would sure be nice to have a, another building on this side over here so we could have fellowships. Well, does it matter? Is it okay? Are you going to be okay? Mike, if you don't have that stuff, this is my own heart counseling. The Lord did not speak to me. <laughs> it's 
does he really care if we're in here or over there or outside or any of that? I don't know if that's a priority, is it? I think the greater priority is holiness and peace within our body and us getting along in unity and maturity. So if you wanted a pastor praying for you this week, it, this passage punched me in the face and reminded me I need to pray for you. Reminded me how much I need you. I need the Lord to help you. Notice he says, or what man is there among you who, when his son asks for a loaf, will, will give him a stone? Obviously, there's two questions here, right? Look at it, our motivation, and talks about the character of God. Two questions that help to develop that idea. Two rhetorical questions to help the argument. Or what man is there among you who, when he, his son asks for a loaf, will give him a stone? Okay, we're going to do this by raise of hands, men in the room that are fathers. Your child says, I'm hungry, I need some food, and you say, tough, get over it. Please raise your hand. Hopefully nobody in the room. Okay, I'm glad you didn't raise your hand. On the other hand, if your child asks for food, and they legitimately are hungry, by the way, sometimes that doesn't always work, if you adopt a Samuel. But they legitimately are hungry, and they haven't ate five minutes ago. How many of us in the room will give our child food? Raise your hand. Yeah. It's natural, isn't it? It's obvious. Is it, is it complex, that question? No, it's not. Look at the second question. Or if he asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? Now, obviously, I guess you can eat some snakes. But most likely, he's implying here maybe even an eel or a type of snake that they did not eat. It's, it's the implication is obvious, isn't it? If they want food, they want fish, you don't give them a snake. Now at this point, everybody, every disciple, anybody that has even a little inkling of a conscience, correct, is saying, I get this argument. So I'm sitting here thinking on this, and I look up at the TV, and I'm sitting on in Subway, my sandwich on Friday, and one story after the next, three straight stories of parents that killed their children. Y'all saw it, right? <laughs> I'm thinking, oh my, our world can't even think straight. They don't even have a conscience. We can't even use these illustrations. Because they would give them a snake. That's how corrupt the world is. It's how corrupt our society is. We can't even use normal illustrations without putting some caveat out there. Except if you're a barbaric person that has no soul. Your conscience has been fried and you live in a country that does not respect and honor God. But thankfully, this is not 
the whole world, right? Most of the time, as a general principle, people, even evil people, are somewhat kind to their children. Praise God, right? But ultimately, it comes down to us in the room. And when he's talking to them, he's talking to the disciples. And he says this, If you, then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give what is good to those who ask him? Now, there's some huge doctrinal issues here, aren't there? What does it say? He's ultimately saying that disciples even, disciples even, are what? Evil. The propensity of evil is there, even in disciples. But he says, even in our depravity, in our sin, we have a conscience that causes us to give good gifts to our children. And I bet if I raise my hand, I'm sure of this. How many of you fathers like to give good gifts to your children? Please raise your hand. Be reminded of that truth. God's grace, right? It's called common grace right there. It works in the conscience of people and men and fathers to give good gifts. But we who are still sinful give good gifts to our children. What is this? Lesser to greater argument. <laughs> if me, being a sinner, gives good gifts to my children, how much more will our Heavenly Father give good gifts to His children? Oh, this is so beautiful. Isn't this great? This should be salve to your hearts, folks. How many of you are struggling with holiness? You want it so bad. You want to kill lust. You want to kill all these sins. How many of you want it? I got good news for you. We got a heavenly father that gives good gifts. He'll help you. Trust me, it's more than about food here. It's much more than about food. It's about what satisfies our soul. What satisfies my soul is my desire to honor and glorify God and to be a light in this world. How many of you want to be that? I want to be that. I want to have a gentle and quiet spirit. I want to be a bold and passionate man at the right times, but I want to be a gentle peacemaker at the right time. I want to walk those fine lines between discerning but not being judgmental. I want to walk that line. How many? I want to walk that line of praying and giving and even fasting. But not for the people's approval, but for God's glory and His honor. I want to do these things and I want to walk that tightrope. How many of you want to walk the tightrope? I got good news for you. We have a heavenly father that can help you do that. 
He loves us. I was thinking last night, if I could give one gift to all my children, what would it be? It's a gift I can't give. One gift. It's a gift I can't give. And it brought me to the end of myself. (laughs) And I cried out. Heavenly Father, I have one gift I want to give to my children. I can't give that, but you can. Please hear my request. Give them a love for you that far exceeds anything I can even comprehend. Save their souls, God. That's our prayer request. I can't even give those good gifts. They pale in comparison to what he can give. But I know that if I could give it, I'd give it. So I think he's already started working on me. And I want to be a reflection of my heavenly father to them. I want to mature. I want to grow up in my faith. How many of you? I want my kids. Again, if I could. These are my prayer requests. If my kids would say, Dad, you look just like Jesus. I can't do that on my own. I need my Heavenly Father to give me good gifts. That's the good gift. We have a Father that is God, that has a character far beyond even our, our greatest moments, right? I think, if we're all honest, I think... Our view of God is still way too small. Because if we really, really understood and embraced the true glory of our Heavenly Father, we might not ever stop praying. Do you understand what I mean by that? I think our problem is is that We're all battling this. Think we are in control and we are the good giver. When in fact, we're just a little giver. And he's the big giver. If evil fathers like us give children who request help, how much more will our heavenly father? So we pray, right? Do we need to pray more? What's the motivation for prayer? A proper view of God's character. You know, this starts where? It starts at salvation, doesn't it? I want you to listen closely. Don't check out. We're almost done. Salvation is deliverance from sin and the power and penalty of sin, right? Salvation happens when we recognize we have a need. Salvation happens when we say, I can't, I need you. 
We can't be a praying person if we first haven't come to a recognition of our greatest need. And our greatest need is for our sin to be paid for and our hell-bound hearts to be delivered from the direction it's going. So, beloved, you can't cry out to your heavenly Father if you still think you're it. You're Lord, you're master, you're king, you're the provider, you're the savior. First, we must cry out to our heavenly Father. The good news is, is God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that he, should believe, he who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. That's our first prayer, isn't it? That's my prayer for y'all. That's our prayer for each other, that we will depend on him for our deliverance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners like us, so we seek our Father who sent his Son into the world. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the great news of Christ Jesus who came into the world. Father, the greatest provision you've ever given us is your Son. And yet while we were yet sinners, you sent Christ Jesus into the world to die for sinners, us. And for this, God, we are thankful. We praise you. We are forever thankful. I pray, Lord, if there's any in the room that are trusting in themselves and looking to themselves for their salvation, that they will repent, that they will turn from that and turn to you and ask, seek, and knock you, realizing that they need Christ Jesus to save them. Help us, Lord, to trust you. Help us to depend upon you. Help us to remember your character and to pray. We pray this in the matchless name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.